How to reduce the costs of using data platforms is an urgent question for many enterprises. Business leaders want more visibility into the drivers of consumption-based or unexpected costs, but they also want actionable direction on how to fix the root causes of those inefficiencies. Blue Sky is working to find new ways of managing and optimizing data cloud platforms. Today, we'll talk with Mingsheng Hang, Blue Sky's co-founder and CEO, about query optimization, uh, storage patterns, and the particular needs of organizations leveraging cloud data platforms. This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Jocelyn is focused on data, ML, and enterprise software. She has experience as a founder, investor, and product leader, and has worked with both startups and large financial service companies. Jocelyn is currently a senior director of product management for Security, a unified data controls company. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter, at Jocelyn Byrne. Ming Shang, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jocelyn. It's my pleasure to be here. Always great to talk with you a little bit. We're here today to talk a little bit about your new venture, Blue Sky. We're going to talk a little bit about um, optimization uh, and managing data platforms, uh, which is your focus. But before we get into that, I thought maybe you could give an introduction, uh, talk a little bit about your background and why you are focused on the problem statements you're focused on at Blue Sky. Sure. So I'm CEO, co-founder of Blue Sky. I started the company earlier this year with my friend of uh, 18 years, <laughs> for 18 years long, uh, Chen. And we met each other back in grad school, and each of us spent the last 15 years also in the industry, working on data infra and ML infra. Uh, before Blue Sky, I spent close to nine years at Google, where I was an engineering lead building the storage and query infra for Google's $100 billion ads business, and that also powers other mission-critical systems. And later, I moved down to TensorFlow team to rebuild uh, we led a team, I led a team to rebuild the backend, what's called TensorFlow Runtime, that made TensorFlow uh, faster and cheaper. And before that, I spent five years in enterprise database startups. So my passion has been building this cutting-edge data and ML infra, and I always dream of going back to the startup world. And my partner, Jen, has a similar background, stellar engineering lead, uh, uh, you know, working at Uber, and before that, at Dropbox and Facebook. And uh, we together uh, had this technical conviction that uh, in order to complete the transition of uh, the, the data infra and, and, and data processing to the cloud, cost efficiency is becoming one of the key top concerns. And this is the, the direction we focused on for Blue Sky. So... Many of the people listening to this podcast have a front row seat for all the concerns around cost efficiency and cloud data, but some may not. And I was wondering if you could give us a little history of the problem statement. What are people wrestling with today that's different from even a few years ago? Sure. You know, Jocelyn, data processing can trace, has the rule traced back uh, by a couple decades now. Uh, relational databases uh, started maybe four uh, decades ago, and uh, there were deep roots back from the Teradata, uh, Oracle, and later SQL Server 
and other MPP columnar analytical database engines. Uh, for all of these prior generations of the systems that are focused on on-premise development, although cost efficiency is important, it tends to be a checkbox. The system just needs to be efficient enough so that it doesn't limit the user's productivity. Um, there is upfront cost in setting up the database cluster, but afterwards, uh, users basically pay for their usage day-to-day uh, -day through paying electricity. The economics entirely changed as we move to data cloud, moving from a kind of CapEx-heavy model to OpEx-heavy model, where people are now paying every second of the usage under the so-called um, consumption-based usage model or pay-as-you-go. This is one of the key innovations in the cloud era, but it also really changes the way we should be practicing data management. Uh, under this new consumption-based pricing model, inefficiency gets directly reflected by larger bill size. And this is where cost efficiency becomes a higher concern. And especially under this down uh, economic mar market, we are seeing companies uh, starting to prioritize on cost reduction, cost control, and uh, keeping co high cost efficiency, starting to really prioritize that. And that is where we think that uh, you know, uh, the space for data cloud cost efficiency and uh, the associated kind of the product innovation becomes a really interesting area for the next uh, five to 10 years. So Snowflake was the innovator here, right? Most people would say in the data cloud space for consumption-based, and it was incredibly a powerful notion, right? Because people got charged for what they used, which you're right. In the old days of Oracle, you wrote the same check size, <laughs> no matter how much or how little of the platform you were planning to use. It was a really revolutionary idea. I think it got a lot of people using cloud data very quickly. Um, and what you're saying, though, is that that open democratization led to a lot of sort of inefficiencies, blind spots, um, maybe extra data or poorly written queries. Um, is it your observation? And I, I think I have an answer to this, but I wanted to ask you, um, is there something special about complex large scale organizations as well that contributes to this problem? Not not just the problem of everyone kind of jumping in the pool at once. But is there something special about a large organization that also contributes to inefficiency? Yes, as the organization gets larger and more complex, decisions and progress tend to be made in a more decentralized way. When the organization and the associated data warehouse design was simple, there tends to be one kind of data warehouse architect that uh, spends time carefully thinking about data modeling. And the result can be a set of well-considered, well-thought-out uh, tables that power kind of the end products, be it the BI dashboards, the data science uh, products, machine learning models. But as the organization grows, so does the complexity of the data warehouse design and its associated set of data pipelines. So we could have more pipeline engineers analytical engineers or data analysts that add more data pipelines in decentralized ways without sufficiently coordinating with each other. This is all under the good intention of moving fast and delivering more business results. But as a result, 
there can also tend to be a lot of redundancy across the different data pipelines or inefficiency within the individual data pipelines. To give you an example, say I'm a new analyst and I'm just asked, uh, being asked by my PM or my executive to create a new data pipeline to power a particular business uh, BI dashboard. Through some search, I found an existing data pipeline that can handle maybe 80% of my needs. Maybe it produces 10 columns and I need eight of them and I need to add two more columns. Now I have the choice of deeply understanding the code and I go and talk to the owner of the pipeline and say, hey, can I modify your pipeline, extend it so I can add the two new columns I need? I could, but first it takes more efforts from me. And secondly, the owner might say, please do not touch my pipeline because what if it breaks? <laughs> That's so what instead, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's all human nature. <laughs> I don't blame them when people want to be you know, risk averse. Well, also in like really complex organizations, some things can't be touched, right? They just simply can't be. Um, and uh, so that's a tough one. And I'd also say, I don't know if this has been your experience. Sometimes the person whose name is on that thing wasn't the person who built it. They don't really that's know. That's also the case. Yeah. <laughs> Even you if know, they wanted to help you. Indeed. When the original author has gone, sometimes the, um, the kind of recurring pipeline that keeps producing output People really don't know what they are doing, but nobody wants to shut it down. We have seen that as well. You know, but back to that um, hypothetical scenario, which, as you alluded to, Jocelyn, really isn't that hypothetical. We have heard similar stories again and again. The new author is incentivized to do what all other developers do, copy and paste the code. So that results in another 600-line you know, SQL query with uh, item you know, views or what's called uh, common table expression, CTE, so long chunks of repeated code that might tend to be duplicated across different pipelines. And so these are the things that are partly technical, but partly organization uh, problems. I'm going to move on to um, your view of how to solve this, but let me ask you this. Um, okay, surprise bills. Nobody likes that. Um, I've worked for a lot of companies that have a lot of money, though, right? In the past, I've worked at Microsoft, or <laughs> you know, um, it's bad, but are there other things that I should be worried about as a leader? I definitely don't want big surprise bills, check, right? But what else, why else does this matter, this optimization? Yeah, you know, Jocelyn, so in the end, unnecessary cost or complexity tend to increase risk and slow people down. Uh, when I was in grad school, I heard someone really wise, it might be Donald uh, Knuth, uh, another Turing Award winner, that says there are two ways of uh, delivering software. One is to make the software design so simple that there is obviously no error. The other is to make it complex enough so that there is no obvious error. <laughs> I'm afraid that this is what's happening with the modern data stack with the data modeling there. It's complex enough that no one can obviously find something wrong but as they would want to extend it to fulfill more business goals, they find it more and more complex, and it involves higher and higher risks of producing inconsistent or bad data. So in this case, right, because yeah, it's so distributed, that cost problem really kind of holds a lot of other problems inside of it, Indeed. right? Of cost yeah, is yeah. a manifestation of the underlying complexity, which oftentimes shouldn't be there, but it's accidental complexity. 
Interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about your point of view about how to solve this. Sure. So our methodology is that uh, we tackle this problem with three steps. The foundational step is to provide visibility. By that we mean we first break down the cost to individual components to understand which individuals and teams are the biggest spenders and which workload slices in terms of query patterns tend to be the biggest uh, kind of cost, uh, tend to uh, incur biggest cost. With, that, with this level of visibility, end users can already do some uh, DIY cost reduction. For example, the head of data can review the list of uh, most expensive query patterns and decide which ones have low business value. So these high cost and low value query items, query patterns, uh, can be removed. Once that step is done, we go to the second step. For the remaining queries that have business value, but might still be costly, how do we optimize them so that they can run faster and cheaper, and sometimes faster and cheaper at the same time, which tend to be a wow moment, a magical moment that people did not previously believe is possible because they are led to believe, let's throw more money to it if we want to make them faster. And that doesn't always work. The last step is, you know, once people have sufficient uh, confidence in our technology in repeatedly de delivering such visibility and optimization, and also they are tired of taking our optimization recommendations and manually implementing them, this is where they will come to us and say, please help me automate the tuning so that we can kind of focus our in-house efforts, building our own product and business, and leave a vendor like Blue Sky to provide the continuous monitoring and optimization of our data cloud uh, house. Um, that's a great explanation. I like the three steps, right? So it's visualization and then optimization recommendation and then optimization magic. Make it continuously. <laughs> Auto-tuning. Auto Auto-tuning, exactly, yes. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about those in, in each chunk and then I have some other questions for you. So in terms of visibility, I really think it's interesting you're looking at workloads and that makes sense, software observing workloads. I, I think I understand how that works, even though it's complicated, it's hard, straightforward. Um, understanding who is using data under what circumstances seems, that, that seems a little trickier. Uh, what, what's your approach to that, uh, understanding what team is accessing data, say like, on, I'm, I'm just thinking about like a, a shared instance with tons of different teams coming in and out. How do you know who's working with which data to what extent? Yeah, so thankfully for a uh, pretty well-established product such as Snowflake, uh, there's a lot of metadata associated with the query workloads. For each query, we understand kind of the name of the, you know, the, the owner. The and producer. sometimes, yeah, the producer, right. So it could be an individual user, but it could also be uh, a production system like Airflow for pipelines or Tableau for BI dashboard. And uh, in the latter case, there could be some additional metadata that tells us the name of the user for Airflow 
like the pipeline owner or the BI dashboard user. So this gives us a second degree of metadata information. So we can further break down uh, kind of the workloads from Snowflake point of view among all of the airflow pipelines, break it further down by the owners or by other metadata like the job okay. names. So there's a bounded context in terms of the start point is the automate, automatic metadata you get in the headers. And then to whatever extent that company has advanced, added, decorated the metadata, then that just makes your thing work better. Okay. Exactly. That's a key point. If the companies invest more into so-called tagging, like tag their jobs properly, the added metadata can help us be even more effective in breaking down the cost and doing cost control and cost chargeback. But in the absence of such tagging, we can provide the first degree of the breakdown and the company can then uh, assess how we can bring in additional annotation. I could see that working where you're, you could come back and say, oh, you know, line of business A, it looks like you guys are using most of the capacity and line of business A could say, oh, we actually get that straight through from line of business C or D. <laughs> you should take your bill back to them. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yes. Okay. So yeah. even just getting a first cut, in other words, of visibility by teams and workloads is really helpful. People can manually address it. They can analyze their problem statement. And then um, the next part is optimization. Oh yeah, please. And Justin, I would uh, add one more thing if I may. In this visibility domain, there is a kind of uh, a well-established practice, increasingly more well-established in the last five years also, called financial operations or FinOps. It tends to be a cross-functional team with part of the team members coming from a technology engineering background and then the rest coming from a financial background. And through this cross-functional organization, they jointly achieve the goal of changing, improving their workloads to achieve better cost efficiency. To my knowledge, this is fairly well established in the public cloud space as well, across AWS and other vendors. But uh, this, um, type of, this type of organization and the best practices are just emerging in the data cloud space. And this is one area that Blue Sky wants to tap into to understand, leverage, and extend the existing best practices to cover data clouds. And in that space, uh, visibility becomes critical. So I wanted to also share you know, there, there are these uh, kind of related concepts and practices uh, that, right, are, right. that are related. The starting point of visibility mm -hmm. is the the must-have starting point for everything you want to do today with Blue Sky, but it could also unlock the ability to change guidelines, update and master your data. There's a, that, anything that would fit into this centralized FinOps activity and data. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you've done all this visibility. What what do you produce from that? Do you produce a, just a, a stream of events or then... How does this get to the optimization? We've got all this information on, we've seen, we see where everything's happening. How does the information get into an optimization recommendation? Yes. So visibility tends to be the initial set of signals that people can take into account to figure out where they should optimize things. These signals oftentimes are not sufficient for people to figure out how to solve the problems. So in other words, visibility signals bring to people's attention the problems. The next layer, the optimization recommendations, 
bring uh, the, the solution candidates. And this is where Blue Sky differentiates from some of the other offerings in the market. Kind of, they bring the problems, but we bring the solutions. So <laughs> an example of the solution is, uh, and this is kind of related to later we'll talk about kind of the concepts of idle time and so on. So um, for a warehouse, uh, the notion of a warehouse is analogous to something like an EC2 instance in a public cloud like AWS layer. So it's a computational container, and this is not to be kind of uh, confused with the maybe traditional notion of a warehouse which is stateful, which contains data. The notion of a snowflake warehouse is a computational container. So basically the idea is based on the size of the job, user need to first pick and start a warehouse of a certain size. The larger the warehouse is, the more people need to pay on a kind of every second on a time unit basis. Now, um, once people are done using the warehouse, in the sense that if there's no more queries coming to the warehouse, at some point, people want to shut it down. But turns out it's not such a trivial problem regarding how to set up this policy for deciding when to shut it down. Because if you shut it down too aggressively, then what if after the shutdown, the next query comes in immediately? Then you have to bring back up the warehouse. It takes time to warm up and you pay the cost of the cold cash, cold start. And so it might backfire. You might end up paying more and the queries run <laughs> You know, more slowly. <laughs> At the same time... It's the worst of both worlds. Worst of both worlds. <laughs> At the same time, we have heard uh, customers just trying to be conservative and with the good intention of preserving high query latency and providing the end users with good experiences, they keep the warehouse on all the time. And as you can imagine, Jocelyn, sometimes mm -hmm. it can be really expensive. And so one of the things that Blue Sky is able to do is to analyze the query history for each warehouse to understand the historical patterns. And assuming the past predicts the future, we can then suggest appropriate uh, such suspend times so that we can hit the balance of keeping the risk of the code start low while minimizing uh, the extra money people are spending when keeping the warehouse on, but without any queries running. That's what we define as idle time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the the idle you're addressing that idle time. I guess the one way to think about it, if you've got a, like all these people accessing their data on Snowflake, landing their data on Snowflake, um, it's great because it auto scales, but. It's less great sometimes because um, it's kind of doing it without a, a plan. There's no there's no central plan around how to manage that um, scale down, scale up, uh, and that's where you're coming in to be uh, thoughtful about that. And that's where that it's not really a recommendation so much. It's an op it is an optimization, right? It's an uh, it's to clarify. It will be our recommendation for how they can optimize. It's sort of similar to us going to a doctor and doctor gives us a prescription, which if you think it's expert opinion, you don't call it recommendation. But uh, fundamentally, you know, the patients get to decide if they take the, the doctor's I got uh, you. advice. <laughs> I got you, thank you, that helps me. Um, and then, um, so it's idle time. What else are the other components of optimizing for uh, reducing costs? Uh -huh. 
So overall, we break down our optimization uh, across three pillars. First of all, uh, there's suggestions around improving query code. And these suggestions go deeper and to tend to complement what uh, the built-in database query optimizers uh, tend to be able to do. So to give you an example, query optimizers tend to look at and optimize the queries on an individual basis. But as we found, since over the last four decades, query optimizer is becoming increasingly more mature. The actual room for efficiency improvement tends to lie not within individual query, but lie between the queries. So early on, I gave the example of having two data pipelines that tend to have a lot of similarity redundancy. So that's one example of the inefficiency that lies across two different queries or pipelines. Another example is the same data pipeline that might be executing every hour at the top of the hour. And yet this pipeline reads the last two years or even worse, reads the, all of the entire you know, historical data since the beginning of that company. The reason why that tends to be the case is when the company just started, the first data engineer that came in and also the pipeline tend to think, well, we don't have much data, so why should I bother spending time making the query be in a more so-called incremental mode, which means whatever that's been computed, let's save it, and let's only every time when we invoke it, read the last, let's say, one hours of new data and stitch together the result with the past computed result. It just takes are a lot you, more are you suggesting, effort. Are you, are you suggesting developers sometimes take shortcuts? <laughs> I would definitely do that. This, this just I... ends. This just ends. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a smart move at that time. But imagine the company is then super successful. You know, a company like Coinbase or other companies, five, ten years down the road. Now suddenly the trade-offs is different. You do not want to read the last five, ten years of data every hour, right? So that's kind of the redundancy that's being found kind of uh, in this temporal pattern. And, uh, you know, developers are smart. Uh, if they're asked, they go and they can manually uh, change the code uh, and make the pipelines more incremental and improve the efficiency by 10 or sometimes 100x. But it takes non-trivial efforts. Developers would be even happier if they can focus on adding value, uh, building more pipelines, delivering more business features. So this is where a company and a product like Blue Sky can come in and find out and in some cases, uh, improve the pipelines to make it incremental. So, so you're saying that it's, you know, the traditional query optimization has been like, oh, this is just a bad query. Like this query is bloated, it's poorly written. It's, you know, so that's one type of uh, optimization you can do. But you're also saying you're looking at, um, you know, the time between queries, the things that are causing a lot of lag time. Is that, are those two different things or are those the same things? Are those both bad queries? Yeah, so exactly, Jocelyn. So the latter is a key focus for Blue Sky. Uh, they are still, these two aspects are related. So one analogy is like, uh, let's say if we write a Python program, that program consists of a set of Python functions. Each function has a, a set of, you know, lines of code. So there can be a smaller scoped optimization, such as in Python runtime interpreter itself. It takes one Python statement at a time, it will do optimization for that statement. But the scope is very limited. Blue Sky looks at the optimization at a larger scope. 
it looks at the function level or even whole program level optimization. So it tends to be able to uncover bigger opportunities. So that's one example, you know. Um, so just to kind of quickly finish, you know, the original topic, what are the key areas, what we call the three pillars of optimization? So query code is one area. Second one is storage, including storage layout. So how we change the indices, materialize views, or use the database features like table clustering key to minimize the unnecessary, uh, to minimize the chances of doing unnecessary uh, full table scan. So by organizing the data with better layout, we can make the compute much faster and cheaper. And the last area is warehouse, where I use this you know, suspension example. Uh, so these are the three pillars, and they're pretty self-complete because all the data workloads are doing is they run code, SQL code, over a certain piece of data within an execution environment, which in the case of Snowflake would be a warehouse. So these are the three pillars that tend to be tuned by experts by hand. And our contribution is to make a SaaS product with some ML AI technology and a lot of our past learnings to make this uh, optimization continuous and automated. You know, so the of the pill pillars, query optimization, storage. And warehouse. And warehouse. Mm -hmm. Of those three, um, where do you think people have not focused enough? Where, where's the biggest opportunity among those three pillars, do you think? That's a great question. We are seeing kind of uh, the optimizations being done uh, at different degrees of, uh, I guess, completeness. On the warehouse side, people tend to, in general, understand the high-level best practices, like let's not use overly large warehouse to uh, host small queries because that just wastes money. Um, unfortunately, this is not just a technical problem to your to our earlier discussion, Jocelyn, it can also be an organization challenge. For example, uh, when individual developers or you know, data analysts want to send their queries to the backend and see their results uh, get it done sooner, they are incentivized to send their queries to the largest warehouses they have access to, right? I mean, that's just what uh, users would be incentivized to do. Um, and um, having a product like Blue Sky would be able to help establish certain governance policies so we can detect uh, anomalies, exceptions when they happen. If the organization has certain policy that says manually submit queries should not go to a warehouse bigger than 2XL. So that's something right, that we right. can help detect and possibly It's kind enforce. of provisioning guardrails as long as you know what your policy is what you po your policy you want it to be, uh, which is sometimes a challenge. I think the most interesting of the three pillars to me is the storage pillar. So taking materialized views, for example, um, you know, that's traditionally one of the things people say, Oh, you know, you don't like your costs. You should do more materialized views. Right. Um, just to walk me through an example. I mean, that is pretty, I, that's pretty fancy AI, right? If you're able to determine where you should be using materialized views and then recommend that back, is that what, I think that's what you're saying, but that seems very difficult to do. Can you kind of walk through how the system would do such a thing? Indeed. Materialization is a very big, uh, big subject. And, uh, that, the technology... <laughs> that I barely understand. I have now executed my full understanding in that question. You know, Jocelyn, the technology of materialized view is one important example uh, in this whole space of materialization. 
And there are other things that also need to be done uh, that complement the materialized view uh, as a kind of one solution point itself. This is still something that has a lot of work in progress. So perhaps one way to talk about this is to share a past uh, project experience I had when I was working at a company called Vertica that pioneered the column store technology. It was a company that uh, started from an MIT research uh, group by Professor Mike Stonebreaker and uh, his students. And as we know, Professor Stonebreaker was the pioneer of the SQL database implementation back uh, from the 1980s uh, at Berkeley. Uh, and uh, do, thanks to his decades of uh, contributions, he won the Turing Award, uh, I think, I know, a couple years ago. So very stellar achievements. And I was fortunate to join, to be able to join his company and work with a stellar group of engineers for the first four years of my career after getting a uh, degree, a PhD in uh, computer science specializing in databases. And there I was fortunate to lead a project uh, focused on what's called the physical tuning problem. At Vertica, there's a component called database designer. The problem definition is given a set of existing tables with the schema and the statistics like per column uh, cardinality. And given a set of queries, how do we uh, change what's called the vertical projections, which are the equivalents of uh, the traditional database indices and materialized views? How do we design them so that we can run these queries faster and cheaper? So this is what Oracle and SQL Server might refer to as the index auto-tuner problem, index advisor problem. And this becomes especially important for column stores like Vertica, because column store under proper tuning can be 10x or more, you know, faster than the traditional row stores, but they need to be tuned. It's like a new F1 sports car engine. You know, you need an expert to tune it. But back then, outside of the company, you know, Vertica with 20 also engineers, nobody knew how to tune it. So we need to scale the business and improve the customer experiences. Hence, we're prioritizing this project. I still remember my VP of engineering told Mingxian, no pressure, three prior groups have tried it. You know, a professor, industry veteran, someone else, and uh, this is now your project, uh, the fourth iteration. <laughs> and, so you're and, no stranger to, to, you're no stranger to a daunting task. Good. I guess I was just young and naive, and I took it on, and, uh, um, and it was fortunate that I felt that problem really resonated with me. So um, I tried you know, a few ex uh, algorithms that I drew inspiration from the past data mining and machine learning literature, and they worked pretty well. We were able to uh, basically efficiently search a pretty large search space and find uh, the relevant projections that would uh, produce really good results in some cases, even, uh, even beat the, the design of the human experts. And one of my career highlights at that time was uh, where we had an end review with our co-founder CTO, Professor Stonebreaker. Initially, he couldn't believe the results. And despite his decades, you know, long, uh, deep database experiences, he couldn't believe, you know, the algorithm can beat a human expert. But when I showed him the workloads, we were working with some of the largest customers back then with Zynga's and others. 
uh, they tend to have thousands of tables, uh, hundreds of thousands of tables, and many more, you know, orders of magnitude more queries. It became clear to him and to everybody, no single human expert, not even a hardworking startup engineer, will be able to go through all of the workloads and tune them. So that's where the algorithm shines. And that kind of uh, result, again, uh, is reflected in the, you know, in the last couple of years in the domain of, let's say, AlphaGo, AlphaZero for playing uh, computer chess and Go. So this is where really the machine uh, could outperform uh, the human. And uh, you know, this is the learning we carry to Blue Sky as well. Yes, yeah, uh, you know, you're really reframing this uh, at a high level for me because I think that's right. I'm old enough in this business. It used to be the best way to, you know, troubleshoot it, uh, the data was for someone to go in, to read through it, right? That was the gold standard. And then everyone's like, whoops, it's way too much data. We need to have machines do it. And then you're kind of taking it to this next level. It's not only can, do machines have to do it because it's too much, but they have to do it better. <laughs> because it's, it's so complicated. Um, so that's really, really helpful framing for me. Uh, and I appreciate you talking about that. We should do another show on materialization, though. You've ca caught my interest there. Um, but I did want to switch great. gears <laughs> and ask you a little <laughs> bit about how the company, I mean, the technology side, I, I love talking about that. How, how's the company doing? Where are you in terms of um, your product evolution? Are you in market? Are you working with starting to work with customers? Can help us understand where you are in, in terms of product development and um, your business development. Yeah, so we're fortunate to have built a very strong uh, funding team with the 10x engineers coming from different companies, you know, Facebook, uh, Apple, Netflix, myself and Google, so on and so forth, Palantir engineer. And uh, we built our first product focused on the visibility and the optimization recommendations that I mentioned earlier, with an eye towards building auto-tuning support down the road. And we onboarded over a dozen customers at this point. By definition, they're all Snowflake users because that's our initial focus. And we have been able to add uh, quite a significant value to many of them. So if uh, the audience you know, go to our website, getbluesky.io, they will see, uh, I think, eight or nine testimonials, beautiful logo and testimonials uh, talking about our value added in terms of providing the visibility and the optimization that in turn lead to cost efficiency improvement and cost reduction. And so, so these, uh, yes. yeah. go ahead, go sorry. Ahead. Please, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So these are customers that like design partners, early customers have been working with you and, and they came to you and said, when you started this endeavor, they're like, yeah, we're, we want to do, use auto turn. We want the machine to decide for us. We're, don't just give us the recommendation, but we want the machine to decide and make the optimizations on our behalf. They agreed to that up front. Have you thought about how you're going to get your, you know, regular customer off the street? <laughs> how are you going to get them to that spot, you know, where you come in and start an implementation? Have you thought a little bit about how you're going to get some early value and maybe hold their hand and get them to the auto-tuning outcome? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great topic, uh, Justin. So first of all, indeed, we started by engaging a few, you know, members from so-called friends and family, and uh, they also helped us uh, with our seed round fundraising. Uh, the investors, as part of the due diligence, talked to them, and they validated that uh, data cloud cost efficiency, cost optimization is going to be a big uh, problem going forward. And then we formed design partnership 
even before we have a product, they were kind enough to uh, recruit us as their pawn, uh, as their consultants. So we can provide some uh, value for their workload optimization as individual contributors while building the relationship, learning their problems so we can iterate on the product development with them. Since then, interestingly, Jocelyn, we have been engaging with new trial users who uh, we did not know before. It's through word of mouth. You know, initially, some customer uh, were happy about our product. They referred us to some other customer. And as they started using us, they liked us. So we're in the process of closing uh, annual paying contract with some of them. So very excited about these success stories as the initial proof of product market fit. Overall, we're still pre-product market fit, but we're getting more evidence where you know, the way of engaging with user and the way our product adds value can be repeatable. Interesting. Um, we're kind of veering into a little bit of the um, the founder story. I wanted to, you know, that's that's a great entry point, and you obviously have a lot of great friends and family <laughs> to rely on. <laughs> so, uh, anyone listening to the podcast, if you want to be an entrepreneur, make friends would be the first thing I think we've learned. Um, you know, we talk to a lot of founders on this show who are coming from a deep technical background, maybe not as deep as yours, but, um, you know, they're technical founders and it's a special experience being a technical founder. How, um, as you've gone through that journey, you know, share with us what you've observed, good or bad uh, for you as a technical founder. So overall, this is, uh, I'm a first time founder. So really excited about the entrepreneurial journey so far. Uh, I'm really fortunate in addition to have a very strong team. Uh, also, uh, I have a few excellent uh, industry veterans as my coaches and advisors. And uh, in the first couple of months, it felt like a honeymoon experience where everything is all great and rosy. But then over the time, there's been more emotional ups and downs. And one of my advisors told me, uh, this is expected. And uh, if something bad happens, just wait for a couple hours and something good will happen. <laughs> and vice versa. So this too shall pass. And uh, I think this has been a very valuable perspective, uh, trying to manage kind of emotional state, manage energy in addition to time. As a technical uh, founder, co-founder, I would say the biggest learning is to get uh, advisors and uh, basically industry uh, leaders, professionals to help us in complementary angles. The go-to-market piece, uh, sales marketing, uh, product uh, and messaging. So this is where I have been having a lot more learning over the last uh, eight, nine months of our journey. Very happy about that, but I think there's still a lot more work to do in that area. All right, interesting. Um, and and you've you've got Chen, right? Who is your Jen? Sorry, um, he has been your was your friend before this. So you have a partner you can rely on. Uh, okay, yeah, I think that's such an important part for technical leads to have someone they can have short like a technical shorthand, and who holds them to a high standard. Indeed, indeed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, there's so you're learning more and more about uh, the business stuff, the selling the business development. Um, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but there used to be a story that, you know, is when tech, when coding and technology and the internet really started taking off, you know, 
um, the CIA took a bunch of spies and tried to teach them how to code and you know, use digital information, and it was a failure. So then they just hired a bunch of software programmers because they were like, it's easier to teach technical people how to be spies <laughs> than it is to teach. I don't know if that's true, but I always think of that because, <laughs> you know, you've already got the hard part uh, under your belt, so uh, probably the rest is attainable. Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, also, I do think it's important to talk about the emotional toll that being a founder can really take. You've got to have some fortitude to navigate all that. So that that's super helpful. Um, you know, just at a like an industry level, I'd love to, and of course I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but um, I'd love to talk, you know, this is such an interesting area where so much happening where we're moving to not just data in the cloud, but um, very distributed microservices world where, you know, where it used to be the application was doing all the work. Now the data is doing all the work with these very simple services on top. What's the role of the query now? Is the query, is the role of the query changing? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. When database um, was deployed, let's say four or five decades ago, my understanding is that Often the end users tend to be the human users that manually typing the queries and uh, get you know get the, the the necessary data back. But these days, as you alluded to, Jocelyn, uh, queries data play an increasingly important role in kind of the operational piece, uh, plugged into some you know enterprise let's say uh, enterprise systems could be part of the backend for e-commerce etc. So there, query becomes one part of the basic the software code that's being deployed and continuously uh, operational. And SQL query is one of the popular languages there to help people uh, express what they want to have, you know, it, want, what they want to uh, retrieve from the database in a very cost uh, efficient way. So I think that's the first piece where uh, query really add, query language adds value because it's declarative, it's higher level abstraction as opposed to writing the same program in a kind of imperative way, maybe with 10x more lines of code. Uh, the second area that's also interesting is the power of the queries are expanding over time. So not only can you write standard SQL query to retrieve data, slice and dice it, group by, aggregate, now you can write uh, you know, uh, certain, you know, let's say user-defined functions to invoke machine learning models. Uh, and in general, invoke, you know, arbitrary black box computation. And so this way you can wrap a lot of the computation as database procedures, UDFs. And so you know, it makes the programming even simpler. And in some cases, it makes the execution more cost efficient as well. So for example, Snowflake is advocating in addition to the data sharing program, now hosting apps. So the future uh, companies, you know, let's say uh, Apple, not Apple so much, but uh, Google, uh, Facebook, you know, LinkedIn, the companies that are heavily based on data, in theory, could become snowflake apps. So I find that poss possibility fascinating, where if you build apps that are being host hosted by data clouds like Snowflake in the future, it can much simplify the deployment and possibly make the cost efficiency high as well. So this is what I'm excited about, you know, uh, Query being part of the future microservice. Yeah, exactly. Right, they're kind of turning into microservices, right? And they're then I like this idea of uh, 
And the reason is because they have to talk to machines, <laughs> return results to machines, right? Um, I like what you're saying though, because I have been watching a lot of the, the data apps, you know, expanding the marketplace into data apps. You know, I love new, I love new ideas. I work in technology, but there's a part of me that was thinking, that sounds like it could be a mess, but you know what, the way you're describing it makes more sense to me of how it could stay controlled and efficient, you know, cause I was thinking, well, you know, if you go, I wouldn't want all my users, my 30,000 some odd users in multiple lines of business, all just running out to grab data <laughs> and data applications. But if you have better optimization, better controls, as you're describing, then that makes more sense. It's much more pluggable and something that like an IT or data engineer, or data lead could feel comfortable authorizing. So that makes more sense. Indeed, Jocelyn, you know, this seemingly compelling vision, uh, but it's still, still messy. It's kind of working progress. <laughs> so it will take a lot of iterations to get to that, you know, the full compelling future, but I'm excited about it. You know, I started out in the software world where everything is pretty like uh, clean and beautiful internal correctness, all those things. You just an answer, or if, you're, if you did your code wrong, everything just breaks, it's pretty clear. But data is its own thing because it's always got some component that's messed up or not quite conforming. Um, and I've only learned that in the last few years. I'm really curious about your, you, you said you did a PhD with a focus on databases. I'm just curious, is that something you are like, yep, I'm definitely doing databases, or did you kind of come to an understanding that that was your great your greatest interest? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I feel data always resonates with me. When I was an undergrad, I was taking the various courses. I love compiler. And then uh, I like compiler, I love databases. First of all, okay. I think, you know, <laughs> database. That's your t-shirt. Um, we have your t-shirt now <laughs> for your next offsite. <laughs> I guess. You know, database <laughs> is a fascinating subject that kind of spans across beautiful theory. There is relational model, there's a third normal form and so on, all the way to practices, the operating system, design techniques, how we implement fast query engines, all really relevant. And by the way, database optimizer is a special purpose compiler. So I still get what I wanted to, to study. And secondly, data, I just feel, you know, not only is it important, it's conceptually a really clean abstraction. We can manipulate it, we can do design, you know, data schema design, uh, the data types, how we parse it, how we process it. There's a lot of interesting technical trade-offs. Um, in comparison, let's say, you know, some of my friends, they go and work on graphics. It's more visual. Uh, unfortunately, you no, know, I don't see myself as a designer. I enjoy, I appreciate good design, but I'm not, not the person that <laughs> uh, built them. Uh, so I, you know, work with these kind of more abstract conceptual entities like, like data uh, databases. <laughs> <laughs> um, what should we be thinking about? You know, this is just, I, I know, of course, you're obsessed with your company and you spend a lot of time thinking about this, but you know, these are still early days for offerings. Uh, there's so many interesting offerings out there right now. Um, you know, certainly in the data cloud space, Databricks, uh, you know, the, the, the big cloud providers, Snowflake, are, you know, have one view of the world where it's going. And then, you know, there's a ton. Of, I also think it's very interesting, all these very low latency offerings and, you know, real-time offerings. Um, do you have any observations about where data is going that you wanted to share or you share, you know, over beers or something when you're, <laughs> when you're uh, more relaxing and just talking about the general industry? 
Yeah, this is such an interesting subject. So I'm seeing a couple high-level directions that I, that really um, you know, excite me. The first one is, of course, ML and AI. Uh, a lot of them are powered by the data. Before we started Blue Sky, um, my default option is to start a company providing ML infra. And that was due to the experiences I had in the last couple of years of my tenure at Google, where, as I mentioned earlier, we managed to build a faster and cheaper ML runtime. When I went and uh, surveyed the larger market beyond Google, uh, a little bit to my surprise, I found a lot of the companies are not yet at the maturity stage where they can benefit from a faster and cheaper runtime. They are still kind of stuck at earlier stages of addressing the ML AI challenges in terms of getting the data pipelines more stable, making sure the data quality is high. So whatever that's fed into the ML model is high quality data. And so this is one of the key motivations for me to work with Jen and start our company that's focused on data cloud cost efficiency first. Once, you, once we have a better cloud data platform, uh, it could then be in a better position to support AI and ML. And so that's one area I want to highlight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is really exciting. I think that's really interesting. It's not the mo it's not the bleeding edge technology, but it's unlocking. I absolutely agree. You know, for years this has been the promise of ML, the promise of AI. We have this one stumbling block. <laughs> it's a big one, but then it's going to unlock so much of what we want to do and, and what we want to do correctly. Uh, right, and unbiased AI, um, making sure we get the best decisioning. Yeah, so um, I, 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 I'm in violent agreement with you. So clearly, you know. <laughs> indeed, indeed. You know, and in this area of ML infra, there are also two subdomains. One is called ML for system, and the other is called system for ML. So, so ML for system would be kind of like you know, we are partially incorporating that in building Blue Sky, incorporating AI ML algorithms into building more intelligent systems that provide continuous monitoring and optimization for people's data workloads, as one example. There are lots of other examples. And then system for ML is we can think of ultimately Snowflake, Blue Sky. These are all systems that contribute to building a better cloud platform that hosts data and then hosts ML computation. So I also you know, want to share, I mean, these are two interesting subdomains that Blue Sky also touched on. Absolutely. And um, the ML for system, system for ML, I, I think is the great way to think about it um, and, and kind of where you're going. seems like that's you know, not, not just today, but where your roadmap's going. Um, it's really been a pleasure to connect with you and learn a little bit about your journey about your product. Uh, thanks for educating us all a little bit about your view on uh, optimization for data cloud. Um, we really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you, Jessalyn. Uh, it's great chatting with you. <laughs>